Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Thanks for joining us for ASHP's Practice Journeys podcast. This podcast invites members to share their stories about their professional path, lessons learned, and how their experiences shaped who and where they are today. My name is Daniel Koba. I'm the editor-in-chief of AJHP and the vice president of publishing at ASHP. I will be your host today for the ASHP Practice Journeys podcast. In recognition of pride, ASHP will host four podcasts with LGBTQ leaders in pharmacy this month. With me today is Glenn Gard. Thanks for joining us today, Glenn. Let's get started talking about your journey as a pharmacy technician and a leader in the field who also happens to be a gay man. Good morning. How are you, Glenn? Morning, Dan. I'm well, thanks. How are you? I'm well, thank you. First, I hope that you and Brio and your entire family and all your loved ones have been doing okay throughout the the COVID-19 pandemic. I hope everyone is well well and healthy. Thank you, Dan. It's, it's great to talk to you today. Unfortunately, it's not in person at the summer meeting in light of COVID and the pandemic. Yes, my husband and close friends have all been fortunate enough to be able to quarantine. My mother, that is a nurse, she works for organizations that have taken the extra steps to have an adequate supply of PPE, so she's been safe even while working and caring for patients. I hope you and, and everyone in your family is okay, you know, especially your mother has been in my thoughts. Thanks so much, Glenn. Yeah, everybody's been, everybody's been well, so we're um, keeping our fingers crossed and we're really thankful for that. So thank you, though. Thanks so much for your, um, your thoughts. Let's get started just by getting to know you a bit. Where did you grow up? Yeah, so I, I grew up in Illinois um, in a suburb of Chicago about 50 minutes northwest of the city uh, in a town called Algonquin. Uh, It was a really great place to grow up as a kid. Um, There were a lot of rolling hills and nature trails. Um, There's a large recreational river there. And we had a boat when I was young. So we spent a lot of time on the water. Um, I attended parochial schools, private schools, and through grade school, through prep school. My, My prep school was about a 30 minute drive from our home in a more rural part of the state, uh, Woodstock. Um, and for those of you who've seen the movie Groundhog Day, um, the square there is where they filmed that, that movie. And I, you know, I feel very fortunate to have had such an amazing childhood. And I, I really do recognize the privilege and charm that came with my early years, even despite my mother um, raising me as a single mother after my father's death. Glenn, I'm so sorry to hear that you lost your your father as a child. Uh, did Did you have siblings? I do. I ha- I have one older brother. One older brother. So that must have been growing up after you your loss of your dad. That must have been um, a, a very special experience for you, your mother, and your brother. The three of you, I imagine, as a as a family unit. Absolutely, is is one of the events in my, my life, my childhood, that really defines who I am today. How old were you, Glenn, when you, when you lost your dad? I was seven. It's very young. It's very young. You say that it defines your life today. What do you, what do you mean by that? That experience with such a, a sudden loss really made me appreciate life and 
you know, really take time to enjoy and appreciate things more than I think others normally would have, you know, especially at such a young age, having learned that, that lesson, um, it, it's made me a better man. It's really interesting to hear those insights, and that's pretty profound for such a young child to, to really experience loss like that and to take, um, I guess, what I would call such a mature approach to, to incorporating it and ensuring that you uh, lived, I guess, what you just the fullest life possible. And, and you know, Glenn, it's, it seems like you've, at a relatively young age, have had a very full life. It seems like you've been really successful there. And to be frank, I, I honestly don't know where to go here because there are so many things I want to talk to you about this morning. I want to talk to you about your career path as a pharmacy technician because you've been extremely successful and you've been a leader. And I also want to talk about how, as a gay man, your life and how it intersects with your your career. And um, But why don't we start, uh, since you talked about your school experiences and growing up, why don't you take us a bit from there? What led you to become a pharmacy technician? And I'm really interested in in your career path, because as I said, I think you've really had a very interesting path, and you're clearly recognized as a leader uh, across the United States now. I'd love to hear more about it. Yeah, I, w- I would say that my career path um, as a pharmacy tech has really been anything but normal. It's certainly been unique. Uh, my start in pharmacy was, was not long after my grandmother, June, moved in with us after a stroke. And I was studying journalism. Uh, right around the time, all of the newspapers and magazines began to, to close and fail. And I was a bit lost with what to do with my life. And my mother suggested that I think about a healthcare career. She really wanted me to be a nurse, you know, like herself, but knew that my aversion to bodily fluids would not be an ideal match with that profession. <laughs> so, um, so around that time, by chance, she was carrying a caring for a pharmacy tech's mother in the health system and struck up a conversation about me. And, you know, one thing led to another, and I found myself working in that health system pharmacy, initially as an unlicensed volunteer, getting a feel for it. And then as a per diem pharmacy tech with a license, a registration with the state, and then eventually navigated through nearly every position a pharmacy tech could have in a health system. You know, I performed med rec, I worked in a Coumadin clinic, I performed sterile compounding and HD compounding, I was a purchaser, um, you know, I could keep going on with the list of job duties and titles that I held. The director of pharmacy in that health system at the time was a really big proponent of advancing pharmacy technicians and truly using them to their max ability allowed by law. He involved me in a range of things from, you know, C-suite meetings. He enlisted me to write policy. He allowed me to form a pharmacy technician committee that had pharmacy techs from all campuses join and, and work through technician issues and schedules and things like that. Um, he put me on an inter- interdisciplinary team that designed a brand new hospital and many other activities that, that really led me to my current position I, I hold now 
at Option Care Health. So how long were you there in that particular health system, Glenn? I was there shortly after I transitioned to Option Care Health as a per diem, uh, but full time, I want to say I worked seven or eight years uh, for that particular health system. And, and what made you make that transition? What helped you decide to make your transition over to Option Care? Well, a big part of it was I did work for a different number of health systems per diem while working full time at my main health system to see, you know, what their experiences were like, their workflows, to try to learn from others, to see what other possibilities or opportunities were out there. And what I really discovered in, at that time was I had already reached a zenith. I'd done it all. I'd been part of everything that I could imagine being part of in a, health, a traditional health system. Um, and so I just began looking in pharmacy still, but outside of hospitals. And uh, I was fortunate enough to work with who at the time was the former uh, director, national director of pharmacy services for what was then called Walgreens Infusion Services. I really didn't know much about home health or home infusion. And my conversations with him, you know, really broadened my idea of what you could do in pharmacy and how you can care for patients. And so the opportunity arised to work uh, for him uh, at what then was transitioned from Walgreens to its own company, Option Care. And I took the opportunity and, and saw uh, the possibility of expanding my scope of practice, learning from, from new mentors, and um, learning a new field of pharmacy. It's really, as I said in the, in the opening, uh, an amazing career path that you've had. And I think you really are an inspiration for many other pharmacy technicians to show really the breadth of opportunities available to them. And I think that you're, you're also an inspiration in another way in that as a leader in pharmacy and who also happens to be a gay man, but I, as we celebrate Pride this month and and uh, tell the stories of ASHP members, I think it'll be great if, as we share your story. And I'm, I'm sort of wondering, you know, that classic question that we all we all get at some point. You know, how old were you when you knew, or how old were you when you came out? But as you know, as a as a child growing up in a small town outside of Chicago. Were you aware that, that you were gay? What, what was your experience like? Where, where did your journey start? I began to recognize that I didn't like girls or have the same feelings towards the opposite sex as some of my friends, probably starting in third grade. And my understanding and acceptance of, of what that was that I was feeling evolved from there until really the early years of, of college. I think I really knew not long after meeting my second cousin when I was 13, what gay was and that I was beginning to identify as that. He was the very first open and unapologetic gay man I met. He also happens to be HIV positive for over 27 years now. And, you know, he was a real influence on me in in that those early years, seeing my family and close family friends really 
you know, not care that he was gay. It was, it was, it, it didn't matter. And my mother recently told me a story about her second, her cousin and his mother, my great, my great aunt and how she disowned him when he came out in the early eighties. But my grandmother, my mother's mom, June, who was her sister-in-law drove from Chicago to Atlanta after my second cousin had a tearful phone call with her about her son's coming out to talk sense into her and was really a catalyst in their relationship being reconciled. My, my grandma June was such an amazing woman. And I think she's probably on my mind lately because it was um, her birthday recently. Um, but she grew up in the city of Chicago. Her parents owned a tavern and she was around a lot of diversity she wore many titles throughout her life, but one of them that I always like to brag about was she was a lingerie model. She was a graduate of the Art Institute of Chicago that she attended wow. on a full scholarship. Um, and I was very, very close to her. Um, she was really one of my best friends. And um, her, her and my mother and my, my uncle Danny, who was her son, they all knew I was gay probably before I even did. Um, and they made sure that I would know in subtle ways that it was okay. And some of those ways were they just, they showered me with extra love and really encouraged me to be whatever it was that I wanted to be. That's an amazing story as someone who's probably more of the generation of your cousin and um, beginning their coming out journey in the 1980s for older generations, especially of gay men, lesbians, uh, by people, transgender people, really, it, it wasn't necessarily always that supportive of, of a journey, but it, it really does sound as if you've had an incredibly supportive journey. Did, did you get a chance to talk openly then with your grandmother about, about being gay? You, you said that, you know, she probably knew before you did, but did, did you have a chance to really talk to her about it? Yeah, un really one of the most unfortunate things is that around the time I was becoming more accepting of it, of myself, and being able to, to say it out loud to others was around the same time she had her stroke. Mm -hmm. So we had conversations, but she was nonverbal, mm -hmm. but she still managed to show her affection and acceptance of myself. My, my husband had the pleasure of getting to meet her shortly before she passed away. And we, even without being able to say anything, sitting at the kitchen table with her and Brio, my husband, cooking dinner for her, you know, she just smiled and looked at the two of us and, and touched our hands. And, you know, I knew that, I just knew that, you know, she was very supportive and, and was happy just to see how happy I was. That's an amazing story. It's an amazing story. You, you said that your cousin was unapologetically gay. What do you mean by that? Yeah, I think, you know, growing up in a, a suburb of Chicago, you know, we, we did go into the city, but it was certainly, you know, we weren't going to Boys Town when I was 10 years old. So when my, when my second cousin came over for a visit, um, it was just, he was there and his partner was with him and there was no hiding 
kisses between themselves or holding hands. It was just them being themselves and being comfortable being with each other in front of other people. And I don't know that I really had seen that. I was young before things like Will and Grace or, or other mainstream media events that put the LGBTQ community in a, a normalized light um, to the general public. So it was really informative to see, to see him and his partner just being normal people. And, and yet, you know, Glenn, you talk about the fact you, that your, your mother was so supportive, your grandmother was so supportive, you saw your, your, your cousin, and you still made a comment a few minutes ago about going through the process of accepting yourself. So even with all that support around you, there was a process of self-acceptance, uh, uh, which maybe that would surprise some people. I was wondering, as you tell that story, if ultimately you've been able to, to reconcile your being a gay man, is who you are, with your faith. Certainly, I, I haven't been able to reconcile it with Catholicism or the Roman Catholic Church as a whole. Um, I'm, I'm definitely a, a lapsed Catholic. I see small incremental changes that I hope at some point in my lifetime or future generations, the Catholic Church will become more accepting. Um, certainly, Pope Francis has been a big part of that conversation, but I do still have faith. I identify as agnostic. Many of my close friends, um, my closest friend being raised similarly to myself in a very strict Catholic household. Not, mine was not strict, but his certainly was, you know, has, has really swung that faith pendulum because of his experiences to being an atheist, I still believe in, in something. I have a faith in, in a spiritual world and I see a higher power, but I certainly by no means am a Catholic anymore. Certainly a journey that many travel for sure. I guess I want to talk to you a little bit about Brio. We would, um, it wouldn't be a complete conversation this morning if we didn't talk more about you and Brio. You were married relatively recently. Um, how did you guys meet? I like to say that we met at a charity event, but it really was uh, at a bar. Um, there just happened to be a charity event happening there. And I, <laughs> I, my friends always say to me, you know, oh, that person is flirting with you or they're, they're looking at you and I'm always oblivious to it. And, and for once, uh, really, I think it was the only time in my life I was the one who was trying to flirt and making the first move after I saw him. I, you know, I was able to see the light catch his, his, you know, beautiful dark brown eyes. And I was just, you know, who is that person? So I was the one who made the, the approach. And, you know, now we're coming up on uh, almost seven years together. And as we record this, episode. Um, we're five days away from our first year anniversary together after being married. You know, he definitely fulfills the, the old trope of opposites attract. You know, we balance each other out very well. He's the fiery Puerto Rican and I'm the passionate Italian. So we, we both can raise our voices at one another. And, and to many on the outside, it sounds like we're arguing, but in reality, it's just us having a normal everyday conversation about something as mundane as what we're going to have for dinner. 
And so, you know, I couldn't imagine my life without him. As someone who's married to an Argentinian, I can completely understand the, the dynamics. Um, we frequently have friends who think that we're in a, having a, a passionate argument, and it's just a really good discussion. So I get that completely. So, Glenn, you and Brio were married about six years after the landmark Obergefell decision, a Supreme Court case that struck down same-sex marriage bans across the United States. And you've talked about privilege a couple of times in our conversation this morning. And I guess I'm wondering, when, when you were planning your wedding and even maybe on your wedding day, were you conscious of the, the changes that had happened in this country and the privilege that you had to get married that many people that preceded you didn't have the opportunity to experience? I think we were cognizant of all that came before us to make something like this possible, to have not only a gay male couple marry, but also, you know, interracial couple. And it was certainly on our minds all the way from the proposal to the wedding planning to the the day of, and as well as, you know, on our honeymoon. And it still is in our minds every day. On the night of the wedding during the reception, I gave gave a a short little speech to, to our guests. And I acknowledged the fact that we, you know, just recently this was not possible and unheard of, and how honored we were to be able to marry each other and express our love in front of those that we love, and, and that it was recognized not just by our local government or our state, but federally at a national level. And it's certainly something that. We were, we were passionate about and we continue to be passionate about. We certainly marched and protested prior to having the landmark Supreme Court case, you know, decide at a federal level that gay marriage could be and would be legal. So it certainly was, was always on our mind and continues to be on our mind. When you start to think about uh, how that translates into your professional life and just the changes in society and the advances that have occurred, have you found the profession of pharmacy to be an accepting professional home for a gay man? You know, my in my experience, I have. I have had the the fortune to work with many local and national trade organizations like ASHP um, that have let me see a number of of practitioners from across the country, many who are of the LGBTQ community. As working for my, my current job, I do get to travel to our pharmacies throughout the country, and I get to have experiences with those local team members in all different types of, of settings, so rural and, and major metro areas from San Francisco to Wilmington, North Carolina. And, you know, I, I've always seen, at least in the healthcare and pharmacy settings, an acceptance of others. And I think, you know, that really a big part of that is just our core beliefs as healthcare professionals that all human life has value 
and deserves to be cared for. And I think that just translates into their working relationships with, with their colleagues. You had to give advice to the next generation of LGBTQ people who are entering into the profession, uh, entering into pharmacy as pharmacy technicians, as pharmacists. What would you say to them? What would be your advice to them uh, for living and working as LGBTQ people in pharmacy? You know, Dan, I, I think I would offer them the same advice I give all of my colleagues. Always be willing to learn and grow. Listen to your peers and mentors. And, and never burn a bridge because pharmacy is an incredibly small world. Is there anything specific to being successful as an LGBTQ person that you think that they need to be cognizant of or incorporate into, into their approach? I, I've been thinking about that question. And from my own life experience and professional experience, Aside from an occasional person calling me a name behind closed doors, um, which has only happened a handful of times in my professional career, and I've always had someone who had my back that was in that room or meeting who let me know or let HR know, or a random person on the street, I, I feel like I've been fairly isolated from discrimination as a gay man. Uh, it certainly has not held my career back, uh, being openly gay. I think I've seen more subtle discrimination and overt racism towards my husband who has darker skin than I've ever experienced as a gay man. That's an interesting insight. I, I wish we could have the chance to talk to Brio as well to sort of uh, talk about his experiences. Maybe we'll have to, on a future podcast, interview the two of you as a, as a couple. So we're doing these podcasts as Part of Pride Month. So how are you and Brio going to celebrate Pride this year? I guess it's going to be a bit different, isn't it? You you made a reference earlier to Boys Town, and I guess Boys Town's not going to be quite as crowded as usual this year. Yeah, it's certainly bizarre to be in the month of June and not have any plans at all. In the years past, we would host a party. Um, We live in the Rogers Park community of Chicago. It's the furthest north neighborhood in the city before you get to Evanston. And they, they host the Pride North uh, street event that's actually just outside of our, our building's front door. But unfortunately, that, that won't be happening this year either. So with Illinois being in, in wave three, we, we are allowed to have up to 10 persons in our residence at a time. So we've actually discussed it with a few very close friends. We have a, a very generous sized terrace And so we're planning on just having a small gathering, again, of our closest friends this year. It's definitely going to be sad to not gather in Boys Town for the parade and have a slushy after on the roof of Sidetrack. But I think (laughs) it will um, have us more appreciate it uh, next year, I suppose. Well, it sounds like you still have a nice event planned. And hopefully next year uh, we will be back to um, some normal. Well, that's all the time we have today. I want to thank Glenn Gard for joining us to discuss his journey as a pharmacy technician, a leader in pharmacy, who also happens to be a gay man. 
Join us here at ASHP Official and Pharmacy Practice Journey podcast as we learn about how LGBTQ pharmacy leaders seek out, grow, and evolve during their careers. Glengard, thank you so much for taking some time to talk with me today. Thank you, Dan. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.